Hi, I'm John Atack, and this is my honoured guest, John Andrew Collins. Um, hi, John. Hello, good to be here. Good to have you. And um, you are the author of a number of books, um, which everybody should rush out and buy immediately. And they, we, we're going to touch on some interesting things here. I mean, reading through um, this book here, uh, Preacher Behind the White Hoods, we touch on the Kardashian family, which was quite interesting. I didn't know they were going to come into it. Um, the Ku Klux Klan uh, and the Pentecostalist movement in general, and Roy E. Davis and William Branham in particular. So um, you grew up in, is it called the Branham Tabernacle? What would be the message? Uh, the cult in general is called the message. The church, the headquarters church is the Branham Tabernacle. Okay. And it sounds, you know, from your book, like a, a fairly restrictive childhood. And in short, what you came to find out was that, that you were being sold a load of hokum, basically, that this, this man was <laughs> not a prophet of God, you know, in the simplest terms. Right. How, how did you, how old were you when you, you started to have doubts and, and came to leave? Unfortunately, I believed it hook, line, and sinker until I was age 37, 36 or 37. We left January 1st, 2012 was when we decided to officially leave. And I believe it was November, uh, maybe September of the year prior that I began just suddenly questioning a few things and had no idea what I would come across whenever I began digging. But uh, um. There were a few things that I realized that weren't quite true, and I wanted to know why, so I dug into it, and once I peeled the covers back and saw what was underneath this thing, my mind was blown. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my experience in leaving Scientology was was similar, that that I I realized that it was the opposite of what it claimed to be. You know, that, yes, and yes. for nine years, I'd absolutely been a true believer, and, and so, to, you know, the it's through the looking glass. You suddenly find everything's actually in reverse to, to what you believed. And that set you off on a, a very deep dive into the, yes. the records. And, and you found out about um, Roy E. Davis, who's a, a pivotal figure. Would you like to tell us a little bit about Roy E. Davis? You know, the, honestly, of everything that I've found, even still today, I find weird things like... That's not in the book that you read, but I found this is also connected to the Nazis, the honest-to-goodness Nazis. Had no idea. Even with all of the weird things that I find, Roy Davis is still, to me, it's the most surprising. Hmm. Because I learned through finding Roy Davis that this was not a religious cult. This was a political cult, hmm. but it was disguised as a religious cult. Hmm. And the premise for its origin was false. And I say this as the big surprise to me because my grandfather was the head pastor at the Branham Tabernacle for 50 years. And you can still go see it today. When you walk up to the church, there is this big concrete inset. And I'll send you a picture for the podcast. But there's this concrete inset that says dedicated in 1933. And in 1933, there are allegedly all of these prophecies that my grandfather 
and William Branham, the central figure, claimed was buried in the cornerstone under this dedicated in 1933 sign. And one day um, a friend of mine told me that it existed, so I went to see, and sure enough, in the courthouse, you can find the deed to this building. It's 1936. <laughs> And so <laughs> I started looking through newspaper articles, and um, I think we have placed the origin of the building. I think they did build it a little bit before the deed was purchased, but we find him preaching from tents until like 1935 on a different lot, not the same lot. And I find later my grandfather exhumed or was participating in the exhuming of this cornerstone to find these alleged prophecies two times. The first time when William Branham died, they dug it up and it's empty. The nice. second time, <laughs> my grandfather pretended he had never seen it the first time and pretended to be surprised that it was empty. But all of this weirdness about the tabernacle is because William Branham was working with the second in command for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, mm. whose name was Roy E. Davis. And Davis and William Joseph Simmons, who was the founder of the 1915 Klan, mm -hmm. um, there was this big inquisition into this domestic terrorist group called the Klan in the 20s. And Simmons got ousted. Roy Davis got ousted. They formed a second white supremacy group called the Knights of the Flaming Sword, which was e even more terroristic than the original Klan. And it was in response to G.T. Haywood, a, Pente a black Pentecostal minister in Indiana, had just published the Victim of the Flaming Sword tract. Mm. And G.T. Haywood was very big into interracial revivals and all throughout Indiana, which is obviously against the Klan's agenda. And so Davis moves into Jeffersonville fleeing sex crimes, molesting underage girls, bigamy, theft, a wide array, array of criminal activity to plant the church that became my grandfather's church. Mm. And let me just, for, for, for anyone who's, who's not aware, the, <clears throat> one of the great works of cinema is D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, uh, yes, it's a, also a terrible, horrific work of propaganda, um, and it, the Ku Klux Klan, in its origins, began after the Civil War uh, among um, veterans of the Confederate Army, and pretty much disappeared. Griffith invented this organization. He invented costumes for them, it, the, the whole ethos. And suddenly it was back again. And it, it swelled to incredible proportions through the 1920s. Um, of course, they were lynching uh, black people. They, they were also attacking white people who uh, questioned their views. And as you say, what we're dealing with, and, and that's the origin out of which comes the modern KKK, um, and it is a terrorist organization. It's an organization that performs acts of violence against other people um, in the belief somehow this all gets wrapped up with identity Christianity, this sense that, um, and there are different stories about this, but 
that black people are descended from a completely different origin than white people uh, and and will be called uh, mud people among some identity Christians. So you have this, you know, for me, religion should be something that's about compassion and tolerance. And here we have a religious group that is based upon intolerance and hatred. So was that still evident at all through, through your childhood and, and through the time that you were with the Branham movement? Was it, is it racist? The interesting thing is that while I was in it, I had no idea. And even after I left, to some extent, I had no idea. Once I began to study what is racism, I began to realize that I was a racist. And I had, I, I had no idea. Like, I had uh, friends who were had black skin, friends who were black. Um, I grew up from Indiana to Arizona, uh, everywhere in between. Spent a lot of time in Georgia. I had uh, in the deep south, right, where, where racism still exists. I had black friends, and I did not know I was supposed to be racist. So from my personality, I was not. But I had a belief system that was. Mm. And... To expand on what you said a bit with the identity, this whole thing was wrapped around religion. When the Klan was rebirthed, it was rebirthed as a quote-unquote Christian organization with Christian values, they called it. Roy Davis, who was Branham's mentor, um, who was largely involved, obviously, with the planting of the church, but also largely involved with creating the third wave of the Ku Klux Klan. He actually rose up to later become imperial wizard okay. he was a quote-unquote christian minister he was working with several other christian fundamentalist ministers he was the i believe it was the director or the vice president of the fundamentalist league which was a christian organization mm -hmm. everything that he did wrapped religion around this thing so they were trying to say that being a white supremacist is an American Christian. That was the political message that was being spread. And there was a theme in the early years of American Christianity called British Israelism, mm. in which the the belief was that, and it's pseudo-archaeology, it's, it's by no means true, but they believed that the people of the British Isles were the actual descendants of the tribes of the lost tribes of israel mm -hmm. and the jews that we see now are not the jews they're the bad guys or the evil branch and so whenever the clan was birthed they weren't just against the blacks in america they were oppressive of blacks and jews and catholics there was this weird belief that catholicism was the evil force that was rising and that the people with the black skin would invade American politics, radio, later TV. And that religious framework birthed what is called Christian identity. Yeah. And this spread throughout the United States. Christian identity, especially in the 60s, this was a big religious platform if you were a white supremacist. Yeah. And one of the fundamental beliefs of the message cult following was called Serpent Seed. So Christian identity, which was a true racist doctrine, was the notion that Eve from the Garden of Eden mated with 
the serpent to produce Cain, and it produced an evil bloodline into the world. Mm -hmm. And that bloodline could be traced all the way through Ham, the son of Noah, and then went through Babylon and then dispersed into the Jews, which are the bad guys, essentially. Mm -hmm. William Branham took the very, very racist doctrine, Christian identity. Of, he took the brand that Wesley Swift, who was one of the fathers of the Christian identity doctrine, he took that theology, he took the words black and Jew out of it and branded it his serpent seed doctrine. And serpent seed was the doctrine that Eve and the serpent mated to produce Cain and produced the bloodline that came through Ham, the son of Noah, through Babylon. And then he stops. He doesn't tell where it went. But everybody who is a white supremacist knows exactly what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And once Branham convinced the unsuspecting people to agree with this very, very political notion, it was a political notion at the time, once they accepted it, he then introduced his high-breeding doctrine, which was the doctrine that if a white person mates with a black person, they produce an offspring that cannot make it into the kingdom of heaven, which is in full circle the doctrine of Wesley Swift. I believe this, so I was a racist, but I had no idea that this was a racist theology. And that's just one single element of the racism that is woven all through William Branham's sermons. Mm. I mean, it's fascinating that that we we do see things, you know, from our own cultural perspective. And uh, I was, I don't know, it was about twenty-one or something, and I read um, the novel *The Silence* by Shusako Endo, and I was pretty familiar with Japanese ideas. I've been involved with Zen Buddhism and ukiyo-e, the you know Japanese um, woodblock printing form. Um, and, you know, so I knew something about Japanese culture. What was really surprising to me, Shusako Endo and uh, Martin Scorsese, I think it was, made a film of, of, of this novel in the end. Um, but what surprised me was that although I was familiar with Japanese cultural ideas, here was a Japanese Christian whose perception of the world was Japanese. It wasn't recognizably the Christian doctrine yeah. that I'd grown up with, his perception of, of the world was inflected by that. And that started me thinking, well, you know, wh where, you know, it's, it's not, my mum used to say she came from Nottingham, where, where I now live in, in the middle of England. And she'd say that other people in England had spoke with a, with a dialect, with an accent, but that Nottingham was, you know, that was the way you're meant to speak. And then many years later, she moved back to Nottingham and said, they've got a funny accent here. But that <laughs> sense that, that what we do is normal, and so we wouldn't classify ourselves as racist because we believe the truth, you know. And right. then, you know, you you come away from it and and look at these this truly hateful idea, which is, you know, really quite crazy. The idea of of snakes having sex with with people. I mean, there there are all sorts of parallel ones as, as the idea of Lilith, um, which we don't hear of as much in Christianity, but that still in the Jewish apocrypha, you have this idea of the first created woman, Lilith, and this, well, if you only had Cain and Abel, where did their wives come from? You know, and we start getting into, you know, the simplistic doctrine that's being presented to us, and then realize that these stories are, are much older than, than the Hebrew 
Torah than the, the Pentateuch, the, the Old Testament, they go right. back to Babylon and we now have ring seals that tell the, the story of Adam and Eve as it was told 1500 years before you know the, the first um, Old Testament writings, which is about 900 BC. And the story is quite different. Adam and Eve are being invited into the garden, not expelled. The snake is the father god uh, who's inviting them on behalf of the mother god, Asherah, who we find is the mother of Jehovah, which is a bit of a difficult one for Christians and Jews and Muslims, I think. Yes. But that's what, what the archaeological record shows us. And they're being asked to eat dates because there were no apples in that part of the world at that time. So it's all changing <laughs> from a greengrocer's perspective. It's, you know, it's a much more saleable item, the, the, the apple and the date, perhaps. But so we live within these stories. We live within beliefs that are constructed from things that, that we believe to be absolutely true. And um, then culture shock happens and we realize that there are other ways of, of looking at this. Um, you mentioned something about a Nazi connection. I'm intrigued. <laughs> it's There's so many fascinating um, stories behind this. I've got... Um, my latest book is Weaponized Religion from Laterrain to Colonia Dignidad. Mm. And I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Colonia Dignidad, but I had I had no idea this was a William Branham message cult compound in Chile, but it was. Mm. And in around, I think it's 1957 or 1958, and interestingly tied to this serpent mating with eve william branham was working with jim jones of people's temple jones was a leader in this movement mm -hmm. jones was a was hosting branham meetings in other cities and other states and he was he was a big name in this but jones as you probably are aware was very supportive of civil rights mm -hmm. he would have seen branham's ties to the clan as the lowest form of evil and during this time that he's working with Branham, I think he has no clue that William Branham is working with such high-ranking members of white supremacy. But there comes a point in time in which all of that gets exposed, and people begin to see that William Branham is teaching the serpent seed doctrine, mm -hmm. and it blows up into this massive explosion in Branham's ministry several people who were working with him and supportive of him suddenly cut him off, Jones being one of them. Mm. Branham replaces his entire campaign team. He's forced to. And one of his campaign managers is the German Baron William T. Frary von Blumberg. And von Blumberg was the adopted, I think he was the cousin, of Warner von Blumberg, who was... Hitler's Minister of Defense. Whenever, whenever this man took William Branham to Germany, William Branham's security detail included a man named Paul Schaefer, who was the head of the Colonia Dignidad compound. Schaefer went to Chile, I think it's right outside of Santiago, and sets up this William Branham cult compound where everybody is living in 
Branham Bliss <laughs> down in Chile. And <clears throat> all the while, he's digging all of these, this network of underground tunnels and creates this escape route from which the Nazis can flee Germany into Chile, hide underground, go through an underground tunnel, and then go to Argentina or wherever it is that they ultimately land. This place was referred to by the Nazis in Germany as the colony. And this became internationally known in the government underworld to the extent that President Nixon and the DIA, which is the military branch of the CIA, worked with people in Chile to overthrow the Chilean government and install Augusto Pinochet into power in Chile. The training facility and ultimately the headquarters of DINA, which was the Chilean military police under Pinochet, operated out of this facility and they began producing German-grade weapons, sarin gas. They set up mobile torture chambers, mobile gas chambers. There are mass graves with hundreds of, they don't even know how many people died. Thousands of people died all across Chile during what was called Operation Condor, I think was the official name. Yeah. But all of this happened from a William Branham message called Compound. And the interesting thing about this is because all of this is so covert, we don't have any official record of William Branham visiting this place or working with these people. It will never exist. Even the CIA has scrubbed most of the details that we have. There's no way to find out. But if you look at the timeline of this, Paul Schaefer migrates down in about 1961. That's about the same times that Jim Jones first visited and started scouting out the area in, in South America. Mm -hmm. Several people from this cultural personality began exploring a migration there. So it raises a lot of questions as to how deeply was William Branham involved. But we can say without a doubt that it was a William Branham message sect that was in there. So uh, it's just an incredible, it's a mind blowing story. And, and of course, it creates the precedent for Jim Jones, Jonestown and in Guyana and, and the horrors yeah. that happened there, this separation from the world, um, which in, in Jim Jones case, as you say, he, he was he, he won all sorts of awards for his work in civil rights, and many of his followers were black. Um, yes. And yet this twisted message ends up with you know the murder of more than 900 people um and it you know showing something of the of the fanaticism i mean and that that's i mean you got a movie in there let alone anything else um, oh, yeah <laughs> as you say very sadly the cia you know broke the law and destroyed records will high nil high so we we really don't know you know, and we don't know the details of, of their MK Ultra, MK Naomi projects where they were seeking to develop mind control, thought reform. Um, right. And, and it gives us, you know, it's, it's a very strange view of history to, to be looking back and saying, well, what was really happening and what was the motivation of these people? Um, certainly, it, it becomes... You know, you know, giving Castro exploding cigars or um, putting thallium salts in his shoes so his beard would fall out. 
um, the bizarre experiments on LSD where, where you have a guy with a two-way mirror who's watching prostitutes giving LSD to, to people to see how they behave. And so that he won't miss a minute of it, he sets up a toilet so he can sit on the commode while watching all of this. And you sort of going, and the, this is a senior government agency run in the United States. Oh dear, you know, where have we got to? Which is not to say that what was happening in Russia and China was was any more sensible. And and you know, I do understand the the fear of of, of those systems, which which were, were truly awful. Um, but this intertwining of religious belief, racism, and you know, creating a, a center for Nazis, um, which you know we we know about Operation Paperclip. We know that um, the SS regiment from Belarusia was carefully exported into the US. We know that um, Reinhard Galen, who ran the Nazis Eastern European uh, spy networks basically went to the Americans and said, or you know, what would become the CIA, uh, OSS, and, and said, um, you can either hang me at Nuremberg or I will run these networks for you and ran 2000 spies for the US mm. without understanding that the Russians knew the whole network. They, so you have this surreal period in history and I'm I'm not sure that history is anything other than surreal at any point when we <laughs> uncover it. But where, and, and again, a, a, the Ukrainian SS regiment was brought to Britain at that time. And they were used, the, these regiments were used to sabotage things in the USSR. The, you know, the, the Cold War was not quite as cold as they would have us believe. I'm not sure what we do about all of that. I, I did a podcast last week about Charles Manson and his deep involvement with Scientology, which has not really been talked about. I didn't realize that people didn't know. In fact, I have the, yeah. you know, the internal documents <laughs> on it. And it, somebody came to me in the comments and said, oh, it's the past. It's the past. Get into the present. And you're kind of going, ah, oh, yeah, Jim Jones at Jonestown, those who do not remember the past are doomed to repeat it. George Santayana, it was above Jim Jones' throne there. So I, yes. I, I cited that as, uh, you know, we cannot deal with the present without understanding the past, I don't think. And and as much of it as we possibly can, as far back as we possibly can, to understand human behavior and maybe do something to make ourselves um, more suited to life on Earth. You know, we, we seem right. to be making a dreadful mess of it. Um, I, I mentioned, so I'm going to have to come back to it, that this is one of the things that, that it stopped me in the, the preacher behind the white hoods that the Kardashian family, the Armenian Kardashian family, um, who now in some generations on are so incredibly famous for being incredibly famous. <laughs> That's all I can make <laughs> of it. Um, that they're, um, is it the grandparents of the current Kardashians or the great grandparents that, that they're involved in the Pentecostalist movement as well? Um, yes, it's, I believe it's the patriarch. Um, I want to say it's Kim Kardashian's great grandfather. Okay, that's involved. A lot of people don't know this. I I had no idea, hmm. and until I started digging, you know, William Brenham has all of these recording and transcripts of his sermons, many of which are missing from the public. 
we only can access the ones after 1947. And what's interesting, the very first sentence in the very first recording is we're getting some new gadgets to be recording with. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's this whole missing chapter of his life, but in the portions that have not been cut, he mentions the same people that sponsored Avok Hagopian, who was an Iranian faith healer. Those people sponsored me. And I get to looking and when I start understanding who it was that was sponsoring him, I was, no, this can't be. <laughs> this is the Kardashian family that sponsored Avok Hagopian. And the sense, the best sense that I can make of it, there's a book called The Kardashians. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, Oppenheimer maybe. Um, anyway, the, the author makes a good point that there was some racism themes in the early Kardashian circles mm-hmm. and that there was a, in fact, there was a minister by the name of Clem Davies who was very outspoken in British Israelism. He was openly supportive of the Klan and even helped Klan membership drives. And the Kardashians also sponsored him to mm-hmm. come and hold revival. So there's this there's this weird connection of white supremacy to this. But what I can gather from watching how the history unfolded and knowing who the Kardashian family is, I don't think they really cared about that so much as the potential for the religious entertainment industry's formation because the nephew of the Kardashian patriarch was a man by the name of Dima Shakarian who organized the Full Gospel Businessmen's Association, which is Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International, I think is the official Mm -hmm. name. And they created this wide variety of Christian businessmen slash entertainment. (laughs) And all of these religious entertainers started going around the world under under the auspices of the Full Gospel Businessmen. And so they, they created this massive network for religious entertainment William Branham became deeply involved with those guys. And even after most of the others severed connection from him, they stayed with him like literally right up to the end. So taking a step back and realizing that not only did the Kardashians sponsor the early version of this thing before there was even a full gospel businessmen's association, but then they created a business entity around it is just fascinating isn't it and 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 what a thought religious entertainment that you know i i've um i'm i'm keeping up with the righteous gemstones at the moment i don't know if yes. you've seen that and i i mean fantastic cast you know having danny mcbride and and john goodman and of course walton goggins as uncle baby billy it's <laughs> and for me it's a tremendous breakthrough that that mainstream entertainment is now willing to look at this taboo subject of the mega churches and the incredible wealth that's been generated in these groups which you know it, it it's been a side study for me you know uh, people like benny hinn and you know how mm-hmm. how faith healers perform their tricks and you know, and this is a reason why we do really need to understand the past and understand just how much um, fakery is going on. 
Um, I, uh, as a family, I was talking to some many years ago and, and, and their son was involved with Scientology and um, not having a good time of it. And I'd been talking with them for some time before they said they were devotees of Sai Baba in India. And I'm sort of, oh, that, that, that's given me an opening. We can talk about that because your son can talk about your involvement with the group, which many people regard as a cult. The, uh, the wall was suddenly there that, that yes. um, you know, and I wasn't saying it is, but, but of course with Sai Baba, you know, he advised the Indian government. Um, and he also did all sorts of party tricks, a Japanese camera crew when people knelt before his throne they, they would feel this this frisson this shock and, and the camera crew got footage of the wires reading you know where you get your electric shock um and and so often we have this justification with um you know people who perform supposedly supernatural feats that if there are non-believers in the room then they can't actually function as, as yes. a way of keeping people out and because James Randi and before him Harry Houdini did a great deal to show this is how it's done and this is a history that that I think is very important and I mean the idea that there are there are so many spiritual counterfeits there are so many people who are exploiting others you know by having um, things like prayer cards where you know, you come to the, the uh, you'll come to a meeting and you fill in a little thing, and then you know the guy on the stage is oh, there's somebody in this room who the the Larouches, uh, political right wing political group, they had this thing that um, when they visited a house, uh, they would say, can I go to the bathroom? And in the bathroom, they'd make a very careful list of all of the medicines, and then when the person went to the meeting, there's somebody here who has. You know, <laughs> Uh, do you know the, the movie Leap of Faith, Steve Martin? Yes, I do. I, I yeah. absolutely recommend that to, to anybody because it is based upon a, an actual con man who pretended to be a Christian and, and shows you all sorts of, of the tricks that can be used to make you feel that something miraculous, something quite inexplicable has, has happened, which then somehow that makes us really vulnerable. That, you know, we, we have a sense of awe and... Uh, my friend uh, Yuval Laor, we have several things on the channel where he talks about his work, um, which is about how belief and awe are connected and how, you know, we somehow, even the most incredible, even the most intelligent people can suspend their critical faculties. You know, I, I get into this discussion about critical thinking that everybody should understand critical thinking. It's a wonderful thing but it won't save you. You know, the problem is that with all of us that we will use the full weight of our intelligence to buttress our stupidity and keep it in yeah. place. Certainly I do. I know I do. Um, and so we, what about the, the, the roots of, of Pentecostalism? Because you've written so extensively about this. You've researched so deeply into this. How did Pentecostalism, you know, come into being? I just gave away my last book, or I would hold it out, but I, I did a deep dive on a man named John Alexander Dowie, mm. who, if you're familiar with the Marvel Universe, this would be the kingpin. This is the big guy. Mm. And he was a con artist in Australia who stole a church and built a ministry. 
and through happenstance became a quote unquote faith healer came to the United States and it was fully untapped territory. He landed in San Francisco and started claiming that he had healed all these people in Australia and the newspapers welcomed him and accepted his statements on blind faith and started publishing this man can heal your diseases. And so he rose to overnight fame instantly because here's a man who can heal me. And he would go from when, town when, to when was this? 1890s, I believe it was. 1890s, yeah. Yeah. So he um he develops this overnight fame and he goes from, you know, side towns to side towns and he'll tell the people in this town that I healed those people over here and then they all, you know, will will freely give you your our donations to help you continue the ministry. He like Branham, he didn't collect an off he didn't request an offering, but they would give him money. And so he was getting extremely wealthy like this. Well, then he would go to the next town. Nobody would be healed in this one, but he would tell them that they were. And he did this until basically they ran him out of California. And he set up camp in Chicago, right outside of the World's Fair in, I can't remember the year that was. It was like 1889, maybe, um, hmm. or 1891, I think. Anyway, he sets up this facade of a church. <laughs> the When you walk towards it, it looked like a church, but it was just this little shanty that had this big, <laughs> this big fake front. And he would stand out and say, step right up, step right up, I'll heal your diseases. And because everybody's coming to the World's Fair and they associate seeing him with this, they think this might be some real thing. And so people started bringing more people to come see it. And he built more shanties and he built what was called healing homes, where if you give him a certain amount of money, they would come and they would, you know, heal the sick and afflicted. And the way it worked was you came and you lived in the healing home while he pretended to cure you. And when you died, they would take your corpse out and under the shadows of night and several people were being whisked out and, I mean, they were dying just left and right. Well, it grew into such a massive, massive movement that he outgrew Chicago and they annexed what is called Zion City, Illinois, and built this entire town that was a commune. The void of him leaving Chicago, interestingly, is one of the things that opened the door for the Chicago mob to take over Chicago okay. because he had political control of Illinois in that if Dowie spoke for you and all of his converts voted for you, you were in. If you made Dowie mad and he spoke against you, all of them didn't vote and he literally could control the vote. <clears throat> so while that is growing, you have all of these other similar things growing. Another one is Frank Sanford in Maine. Sanford created the Holy Ghost in Us Society and claimed that he too could heal you. And if you come and give him all of your possessions, then you would join his commune and they would heal you. And countless people died. He ended up creating a floating commune and had to flee the country because he was going to be prosecuted or sued or whatever. But they, they left in two boats and he ate like a king while everybody else starved. They didn't have any food. And several people died. He went to prison for it. Well, the father of 
modern Pentecostalism, whose name was Charles Fox Parham, was, in my opinion, also a con man. There are some who say he was a man of God who was duped, but this was a man who invested in companies that claimed that you could take this magic elixir and make gold from God by pouring this elixir on a rock. And he was one of the business investors, right? He goes to Sanford's commune to see how Sanford has made all of this money. Then he goes to Dowie's commune to see how Dowie's made all this money. By the time he went to Dowie's commune, Dowie had made, I think it's like $10 million in the 1890s. It's, in today's money, it's half a billion dollars. Yeah. He, he was labeled the richest man in the West. Well, Parham joins all of this thing and goes back and creates his version of this. And a man by the name of William Seymour, who is working with Parham, sees how all this is operating, and he is a man with black skin. And down in the south where all of this is going on, he's not well received, so he goes out west where he is better received. He goes out to Azusa Street, and suddenly somebody starts breaking out and speaking in tongues while he's there, and it mm -hmm. created the Azusa Street Revival which was the birth of the birthing of modern Pentecostalism. And from there, I mean, it became really weird. There were people holding seances there. There were, there was just weird conglomeration of spiritualists and Christians and Hindus. If you go read the history, it's kind of weird how this came about, but the modern Pentecostals look to this as the origin of the faith. Many of them do. And this spread throughout the United States and somewhat died out. When it began to die out, they these Pentecostals were claiming that they were like the day of Pentecost in the Bible. This is this is whenever the gifts came. This is the speaking in tongues. The, the tongues of fire fell on them at Pentecost. That's what happened to us, right? Mm. When Which it is what happens to, to, out, to the disciples in the, the exactly. gospel story. Yes, exactly. So when it began to die out, there was a second revival in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, by, it was held by, I um, can't remember the guy's name, Herrick Holt was one of the men, there were three men who were involved in setting this children's orphanage, who were sponsors of William Branham's ministry. The Sharon Orphanage was, used William Branham's theology as a catalyst for their revival, and they also used Franklin Hall, who had the theology of fasting as part of his theology. This birthed what is called the Latter Rain Movement, and another wave of Pentecostalism spread to the United States. This grew into a massive, massive movement that literally became the foundation for everything that we've talked about in this podcast. Mm -hmm. John Osteen, who's Joel Osteen's father, was in this thing. So he was connected to the Branham movement. We actually have a chart, and I'll try to give you this too if I can remember, but hmm. a chart of how all of this developed. And T.L. Osborne, who is the guy on the the Trinity Broadcasting Network, the, the face of Christian televangelism, basically, he preached Branham's funeral and said, that man was God in the flesh. And I'm paraphrasing, but <laughs> the, these men who were in this weird charismatic movement they all can trace their origins to this thing. Right. And it's it's Pentecostalism that grew and splintered 
and each splinter group grew and splintered and those grew and those splintered and it continues over time. You mentioned the dangers of not examining the history. Recently in Kenya, there were, I think it's up to 300, over 300 people now that they have identified bodies who have committed mass suicide through starvation. That was a Branham cult compound. They okay. were starving themselves to go to see Jesus. And if you combine the missing with the confirmed dead, it's actually bigger than Jonestown right now. It's, it's a massive, massive thing. Um, David Berg, the children of God who had the sex slaves for Christ. He was a Branhamite. Okay. We've recently identified that he is calling Branham a messenger and he's promoting Branham all through his ministry. Branham actually blessed his ministry after he was ousted from a church for molesting a small child. And he took that blessing, converted to the latter rain, and started the Children of God cult. Hmm. So there's so much danger in not examining this history and understanding where it came from, because if you're a Christian and you and take the Bible's instructions to know the tree by examining the fruit, the fruits of this are very, very bad. Yeah, yeah, it's a very, very good piece of advice that, that, that and, and, it it's absolutely incredible the way this sort of spreads the contagion of of these ideas so you know, going back into the 19th century you have people like ralph waldo trine in tune with the infinite um a book that's very little read now but you then we have mary baker eddy and madame mm -hmm. blavatsky people who will have a remarkable influence i mean madame blavatsky's idea that the uh, people of Atlantis um, miscegenated, interbred with the people of Lemuria, which is ridiculous nonsense. And the woman was an absolute fraud. She was the first person investigated for, by the British Society for Psychical Research, founded by uh, William James and uh, Mark Twain, among others. And they set about researching these things. And she was the first person they examined, and they declared her a fraud from those examinations. Yet. If we then look at the Nazi movement and the influence that her, her ideas that if you could purify the Aryan, you know, bring back the Aryans, that the Ananeb ministries are all set um, under Himmler, head also of the SS and the Gestapo, the Ministry of the Interior, that he has the Lebensborn program, this breeding program for people with blonde hair and blue eyes, so that the, the the children will have supernatural powers electron powers they were called by one of the, the founders of um pangen pangermanic aryan race theory this all comes from this crazy woman and mm -hmm. layer upon layer we we see you know of course many hundreds now of groups have aspects of scientology in them um Ron Hubbard has been called the godfather, the, sorry, the grandfather of the new age. I, I think it goes back a little bit before him. Much there further. are people like yeah. um, Alice Bailey and um, Alistair Crowley. But these ideas, which from the outside, we look at them and we, we go, well, this is not Christianity. This, this is, you know, Christianity is, you know, love and tolerance and um, forgiveness and these sort of mm -hmm. things. And we see these hate-filled movements that have, have been generated where 
religious belief is used as a weapon, as a way of of harming other people. Um, so you remind me, my friend Joe Zimhart was was um, talking about going to a, a Pentecostalist meeting and they were speaking in tongues and and he felt a little bit awkward so he thought he'd better join in so he started shouting things in hungarian which is his his second language and uh, they were extraordinarily pleased with him you know that that he he joined in in this way it from the outside all of these groups look ridiculous they look comic that and yet the reality is they're incredibly dangerous they influence the world and all around them. You know, we of course have um, Jeff Charlotte's work on on the family, the International Christian League, which presidential prayer back breakfast came from them, and many modern politicians belong to this group without understanding that that it has you know distinctly fascist overtones. You know, we, they're members are told that Hitler and Stalin were, were great leaders. And there's this passage from, I think it's uh, Romans 2, about, you know, God appoints the leaders of the world. So you have to do as you're told. And sort of going, so, you know, if Mao Zedong says, go out and kill a million people, well, he's the leader, God must put him there, therefore. So we come into terrible places where authoritarians are able to create cultic belief and people will do things that that are well the holocaust is is a heck of an example of of just how badly wrong a society can go because it adopts ridiculous beliefs it, it adopts antisocial uh, hateful beliefs uh, towards other aspects of society um what else have we got there is so much material here there is so much <laughs> to, to work with um what about the, the the present day state of of the pentecostalist movement in the us um it's still i believe a powerful force with with political connections it is and you know it's it's interesting I, i'm really fascinated by apologists and debates on Christianity versus those who are not Christian. And there was a person, I think his name was Walter Martin, who was one of the Bible answer men, basically, the one, the Christian apologists who are defending the Christian faith against the cults. And I think he wrote Kingdom of the Cults was the book that he's famous for. And he branded the UPCI in general, the entire conglomeration of United Pentecostal Church as a cult. And he's, his reasoning was that because they would, they refused to fellowship with other Christians who had a different understanding of the Godhead, because they severed themselves, they were showing the signs of a destructive cult. They're severing themselves from the body of Christ. And that was his, that was his mentality. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say whether Pentecostalism in general is a cult, and go, go so far as he did. But what I can say is the way the movement has grown and splintered and grown and splintered, many of the splinter groups are very, very destructive. Mm. We've mentioned just a few. And, you know, my history, my historical background is on Branhamism, but I actually go in the opposite direction too on the website. I go to 
the cross-pollination of weird doctrines that created Pentecostalism, many of which are rooted in spiritualism, Gnosticism, pseudo-archaeology, political agendas, all of this. There, there isn't a one person who is the problem. William Branham is not the problem. He mm. is the face for this thing that developed into this weird movement. And what it created, when I, when I began to deprogram myself, and I took a step back from all of this, mm. I was struggling deeply. And I had a cousin who was calling me every single day to make sure that I wasn't going to, to claim my own life. And he told me, I asked him one day, what do you believe? And he said, I believe the cowboy religion, John. I said, what's that? And he said, love God, love your neighbors that aren't trying to kill you, and be kind to animals. <laughs> and at the time, I was still in this Branham message thing, and he didn't mention William Branham, so I was like, you're going to hell, man. <laughs> and the farther I get away from it, the more I realize he's, he was more right than you know than most Christians today. And that's the sad part, because... This thing that has evolved over time, it's not just the Pentecostals that were influenced. American Christianity in general was influenced by this thing. You had Baptists joining in it. You had, I mean, there were, there's even some statements where William Branham is talking to a Catholic person who's coming to these things, not knowing that he's, they're in a movement that is largely against the Catholic Church, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you had all this weird variety of influence that began to influence the denominational churches, and it has swayed the opinion such that if you have another Christian who is not in agreement with what you consider to be your core ideology, that's the enemy, even though they're a Christian, they're a follower of Christ, and it... There's no better way to say it. I've tried to think how you can delicately and politically correct say, correctly say this, but this was a movement created by hate groups, and it created a religion of hate. And each one of these movements, each one of these splinter groups that evolved from this thing, if they're in a destructive state where they can sit in a room with another Christian and hate them because they don't believe in the same way, they're no better than the Ku Klux Klan. They're no better than the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the family. Yeah. Highly politicized Christianity. This is an evil, evil thing. Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether you agree with the National Prayer Breakfast or not, this is an evil thing. William Branham's German Baron William T. Freire von Blomberg that I mentioned was a director in the family. Okay. Have a photograph of William Branham at one of these national breakfasts on the website. If you type in Nixon on my website, you'll see it. This was a political movement. This was a political agenda. And every single person who's sitting in there listening to this thing, they're getting Christianity. They get bits and pieces of the Bible, but mixed with it is also the political agenda of whoever is the speaker. And so it's swaying politics and what has happened in America, we have this separation of church and state that was the foundational platform of America, right? Mm -hmm. What they have done is they have found a very deceptive way to bring it back where it is fully integrated, mm -hmm. and they did it through this movement. 
Yes, and and I mean, I mean, there's there's a possible irony in in you know that among the founders were people who were deists. They were not directly Christians, and so they were yeah. protecting themselves. You then, of course, have the transcendentalist movement in the United States, which seeks to be, uh, you know, an intelligent view of religion. And people, you know, I mentioned William James. I was quite surprised, you know, having been familiar with. I, I read the Varieties of Religious Experience many years ago, and and it's an incredible book. This man had a remarkable mind. So I was very surprised that he was a founder of both the British and the American Psychical Research mm. Societies, though he did say that he was not convinced by any of the evidence that was collected, ultimately. But finding, you know, where, you know, belief in um, a deity, belief in a, a set of values, then becomes allied to political power. Um, and I couldn't agree more with you. I, I mean, absolutely. Jeff Charlotte's two books, um, The Family and uh, C Street, are, it's a remarkable expose. But there's a, a neuroscientist, uh, she was a professor at Harvard before she had a stroke, uh, Jill Bolt Taylor. And she said some words to the effect that we, we believe that we are thinking creatures that feel. In reality, we are feeling creatures that think. And I think to understand that and to realize how much we are driven by emotional connection and these alliances of, you know, us against them, the, the, you know, I, I, a couple of years ago, I was talking with a friend who was a Republican, um, which is fine. Uh, and he talked about patriotism. And we got into this conversation about what this word means. And I asked him, you know, this means that you're willing to give your life up for your country. Fundamentally, that's what patriotism is. And he said, yes. And for the people of your country. Yet, if they were Democrats, would you be willing to do this? And that <laughs> awful division where, you know, I, I, you know, Charlie Chaplin, Einstein, various people over the centuries have said that they were um, citizens of the human race. They, they were not, you know, we have this no you know, nationalism now this idea that somehow my identity is you know i'm an englishman therefore everything that has ever been done by england is good and um yeah we, we're now getting the inversion of that we're getting white guilt where people are apologizing for things that they didn't do for things that they don't believe and it it's quite right to apologize for for slavery absolutely and that the worst offences of slavery were committed against the 25, 30 million uh, African American, sorry, African slaves who were taken by the British, by the Portuguese, by the Spanish, by the Americans, uh, but of course also by the Arabs. And we're in a situation now where there is talk about, you know, paying some kind of reparation to the great, great, great grandchildren of people who are held as slaves. And we come into this area of, well, you know, tragically and awfully, um, there probably aren't any descendants of slaves who don't have the blood of slavers in them because rape was a commonplace and because the house slaves, the good looking women, would be more likely 
to have children than the field slaves who were being starved and beaten. So we have this anomaly that probably because my forebears are all, you know, from this country, as far as we know, going back some generations, I don't have the blood of any slavers in me. So creating these situations where you can say, well, we can hate this group because of this, you know, the, the white cis male is, is now the target group of group to which I quite by accident belong, you know, um, I'm also middle-class. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Anything that is generating these divisions in society that is saying <clears throat> we, we weren't equal and we're not going to be equal. You know, I'm a great believer in equalism in, in the sense that I don't have any concerns about people's beliefs, about their culture, about their skin color, about their gender, um, or where they consider they are on the spectrum of gender. Those are not things which are of any concern to me. My concern is how compassionate are they, essentially? How much do they care about other people? And how do they express themselves and comport themselves in the world? Are they indeed pro-social and looking for the survival of humanity? Or have they you know, put themselves into an enclave where they now justify their hatred because of serpent seed or you know, um, something that um, Elijah Muhammad said, or you know, that they've taken on board something? You talked about the, the idea, you know, are these groups cults? And I think that's a very fascinating, contentious area, having spent 40 years dealing with um, such things. And one of the most frequent questions I'm asked, people will say, you know, my son, my dad, or what have you, has joined this group. Is it a cult? And I have to hesitate and go, well, by dictionary definition, a cult is a, a group that has a devotion to a leader or a doctrine. So, yeah, probably. Is it dangerous? This is this is the problem. And for me, the danger is authoritarianism, where yes. we have people who believe that they have some sort of something like a divine right to tell us what to believe and who exhibit certainty. And when we take that apart, look at somebody like Adolf Hitler, that he, in a time of great turmoil, offered certainty. And when we look at that certainty, he was not a smart man. He was not somebody who'd figured out how to do things. Um, he was a demagogue. He was somebody who could get followers. That sense of certainty in uncertain times where, you know, 45% of German medical doctors joined the Nazi party. You know, it's an incredible thought. You know, if you, if you look at contemporary China, 4% of the population belong to the governing Chinese Communist Party. Most people do not join the party. But in Germany, 45% of highly trained medical doctors, people you'd have thought had quite an education and were, were quite well informed, were willing to take this on board. And that, so at one end, you have the authoritarian leader, the person who tells us what to do. And then you have the authoritarian follower. And for me, that's where the problem lies, that, that we're, not, um, we're not teaching children to recognize the, you know, the quite evident bullying that is going on in our society we, where, where people are believed and put forward ideas that are 
antisocial and dangerous and you know how to spot those people and you know that's largely what my work has been in in the last decade or so um trying to find some way of of explaining those 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 things and a large part of that is indeed the history you know of these groups and if we look to christianity one of the things that concerns me is uh, a friend of mine he got very angry with me this was about 30 years ago he sat in the diner in los angeles and he said whenever i say anything negative about scientology to one of my my family members they say but it's a religion and i said well the temple of set and the church of satan are both religions in the <laughs> US. Uh, and i'm not yeah. complaining about what they do you know they can do what they want to do as long as it's not antisocial but the idea that groups that you know performed the inquisition or um, witch burning on a massive scale should be thought of in a positive light you know that, that religion is a kind of per word and you're sort of going well what about the aztecs cutting people's beating hearts out or or the thuggies giving people deter and strangling them you know they were they were up to about five thousand killings a year in india the, the thuggies for the worship of kali it's a religion it's a genuine religion and i think we have to you know I, i'm concerned about the, the use of the term new religious movement as a sort of opt-out clause so we can be nice about groups which are not necessarily new they're not re necessarily religious and they're not necessarily movements by the standards put forward by the Oxford scholar Brian Wilson, um, the Charles Manson family was a religious group. They they tick, in fact, more boxes in his assessment than Scientology does, and Scientology is registered as a religion. So these, this kind of deceptive branding, you know, saying, is this thing a religion? It really doesn't matter whether something's a religion. It matters as you said, and as it says, Jesus says in the Gospels, consider the, the tree by the, the fruit thereof. And, and if the fruit is rotten, then, you know, we need to be careful. That brings us to, you know, perhaps finally, the, the nature of true religion. And I'm an agnostic um, because I understand that I don't understand. I don't feel any, any need to believe anymore. You know, I'm 68 years old, so, you know, I should be past all of that anyway, who knows? And I feel comfortable about that. And I think for many people, the idea of, of simply conceding that we don't understand and that therefore we should cleave to certain values. And I think those values are compassion and humility. And um, I was, I've had the great pleasure of spending five hours with the Archbishop of Crete um bishop Arrhenius, who was just the most lovely human being just absolutely wonderful and after he'd realized that telling me miracle stories about muslims who converted to christianity wasn't really having any effect on me i've heard muslims tell the same stories about christians um <laughs> so you know if i don't if i if i can't put my finger in the hole then i am a doubting thomas you know that that's all there is to it but after that he turned to me and this man in his 80s uh, truly you know there are, i've met very few people in my life who really are chilled out you know except you know if they've taken too much valium or something you know and this guy was you know he was in a a, a very good state of mind you know he, there was nothing superior about him and he said well what do you believe and i said to him i, I believe in compassion and, and i try to show it um 
and I know the meaning of the word humility and I hope to have some one day. <laughs> and, and he latched onto that. He said, humility is the basic human quality. And when we look at somebody, these boastful preachers who call themselves prophets, the, the thing that is, is, is most obvious is that the braggadocio, the, the, their sense of their own importance, that has no part in, in religion that is helpful towards people, people who you know, would let us believe um, you know, that, that they are, as, as you said, God in the flesh, you know, when, when they're actually just sleazy con artists. Mm. Yeah. You know, I grew up third generation of this cult, so my perception of the world growing up was based off of this cult. I mean, that's all I knew. That's all I lived, breathed, ate, slept. You mentioned the righteous gemstones, which I'm familiar with. The um, the weird part about this is I grew up as cult royalty. I was at the top of this mm. cult. My family was in the head church. My grandfather ran the head church. And so not only did I see the worldview of the cult, I saw what went on behind the scenes. Mm which makes righteous gemstones very fascinating because there are so many similarities to the way I grew up and what this show, I know this show is a lot, a little bit over the top, but of course. what it's exposing is that there is a stage presence for these men. And then there's all of this filth on the underground that they don't tell you about when they're standing behind the pulpit. So I get to see all of this, right? <clears throat> and when I left all of this, I went through, like everybody does, this soul-searching journey. What am I? What do I believe? And we tried different churches, Baptist, Christian church, um, Methodist, different ones. And I still came back to the, that saying, love, your, love God as yourself, love your, love your neighbor as yourself, and love God. The two greatest commandments. If you can't run everything through this filter, what is it that you're in? Because it's not Christianity. It can't be. If Christianity is true, it cannot be this, right? Hmm. So we tried evangelical churches, and I've got neighbors who are great neighbors. I love my neighbors to death. They're Muslims. Hmm. An evangelical would have the mindset that I must convert them, and if I can't convert them, I need to wash wash my feet from wash the dust from my feet as mm -hmm. I leave them. And you you're basically trained, you cut them off, right? Yeah. And can I run that through this filter? Can I say this is truly loving my neighbor as myself? Mm -hmm. When Jesus said, How many times should I forgive them? 70 times seven, right? Mm -hmm. And the more as I step back and look at all of this in general. The problem that I have whenever somebody says, is my cult, is my church a cult? Like you, the word cult just simply means a following. It's not that bad. And whether they're dangerous or not really isn't for me even the question. It's whether they have a destructive potential for the danger. Mm. Because like I said, I grew up in this first generation. My perception is different than somebody who joined it late in life. They have established a worldview and they also have the cult view i did not so in the scenario with my neighbors if i am raised to believe that like this minister says if i try to convert them and they don't 
wash the dust off my feet and these people are turned over to satan however they do it you know different churches have different methods but to the minister saying it he's just simply saying it for the entertainment factor in most cases he's saying something that everybody's going to say oh praise god yes they did not convert to jesus which again is ridiculous mm. to the people who join the church who are hearing it they're thinking it as a mission to convert and then they're not going to wash the dust off their feet they're still going to be nice to their neighbor if they're good people if they're bad people they're not but to the child who grows up in this the child's mind is trained whatever the pastor says whether he's an authoritarian pastor or not when he says it that's very real to a child mm -hmm. so i grew up even though i'm in this weird righteous gemstones family when my grandfather, who was a complete hypocrite, said these things, I believed him. Mm. When all these other ministers said these things, who I know, not all of them, but many of them are very much in the same category, mm. I still believe them because I'm a child. The problem that I see is the children will eventually grow to adults, some of which will become a minister. Now they have been radicalized. Yes. Even though it was not a destructive church, not a destructive cult mm. these people become radicalized and then there's the potential for danger because now take their children when they grow up under this radicalization it gets hyper radicalization and it has the serious potential for danger mm. i can't say that they're all cults but when you have the mindset that i have to view my indian neighbors who are they're asian indian they're muslim they have a different view of God that I don't believe. I don't believe in the Muslim God, but I see them as people. I see them. My method, if you want to be a true Christian and you want to convert somebody, show them the life of a Christian. <laughs> show them how the good people should live, and they should want to come to your religion. If you try to force them into your religion, they're just going to look at you like you're a freak, and they're going to make you wash the dust off your feet. This is not the way. This is this is not the way you should live. No, absolutely not. I mean, one of my closest friends, Christian Cherko, um, he's called Christian and he is a Christian, <laughs> um, but I don't think he goes to church very much because he spends his time helping people. And by now he's and, and it, it happened to him accidentally. He studied theology, has a degree in that, but he was working as a, a cinema usher and somebody came up to him and said they're having a problem with a group called Silver Mind Control, that's S-I-L-V-A, which is an offshoot of Scientology, in fact. And he found himself talking to this person and from then on people just kept coming to him. And now he's talked with, I would guess, somewhere over 3,000 people over the years. He is outside of the counter cult movement. He's not um, attacking anything. He doesn't do interventions to get people out. Um, if somebody comes to him and you know that somebody they love is is involved with the group, he will go and talk to them. He'll tell them who he is. He'll be totally open about him. And it might be years that he's talking to them. You know, he's not there to convert them. He's not there to. He's yeah. certainly not there to sell them on Christianity. He is an active Christian. He won't take money for what he does. If six months after you deal with him, you want to give him money, then that's fine. People don't. He, he lives in poverty as a consequence. Now, 
for me and and he's quite happy to talk with me about theology you know even though i walked away from christian belief when i was 13 years old um, and have never felt inclined to take it back other than as a metaphor other than that which i see which is good within it which is useful so i'm i'm quite happy to to quote from the gospels where i agree with what's being said you know you know even 70 times 7 and um the fruit of the tree but he he exemplifies what isaiah berlin put forward which is we should be intolerant only of intolerance um so i've spent a lifetime studying religion i've i've probably read 40 texts on islam over the years for example and my understanding is that the god allah the, is the same as jehovah there isn't a yeah. difference um and we m believers in god make of god what they believe and uh, i was shocked that that um during the the uh, what's called the commonwealth period in the civil war in the 1640s in this country when the puritans came to power they whitewashed the inside of churches they broke the stained glass windows that you know this was all idolatry and you shouldn't do it now quite a lot of these whitewashed wall paintings have been recovered since then and we find that they're generally of apocalypses and when you sit in a room and you're surrounded by these images of people burning in hell now i thought at first that this was to warn you that you'd got to live a good life no my understanding now is that the congregations in these churches would go that's what's going to happen to you people who've been horrible to me <laughs> so it it's festering it, it it's awful um i've yeah i'm a big fan of i'm a big fan of all sorts of music and i can see from the room you're sitting in that that, that you too are and among my many many um musical likes is dave matthews and i think he um expressed a, a, a very straightforward thing there's a lyric in one of his songs where he says with kindness as your king you will reach heaven before you reach your end and i think that is the truth that that if what you are believing and the way you live is giving you satisfaction if and giving help and sustenance to others then you will live a fundamentally happy life i believe that if you're boiling over with hatred and you know to other sections of the community you will never be happy it's just not possible you you'll have a kind of malicious satisfaction you know schadenfreude when other people are hurt um many years ago in 1991 was it the first so-called gulf war i was in bishop california and um we went into a shop to to buy something and there was this huge guy behind the counter and he asked us what we thought of the iraq war which had started sort of the day before or something and um i was trying to find words but my friend who's a lot more articulate than i am very immediately said something completely bland so the guy wouldn't be able to interpret it and this guy looked at us and he said i think we should bomb those effers flat and i was sort of standing there going 
So the cradle of civilization, you know, where Babylon and Sumeria were, we should kill everybody there. Why? You know, what, what is the idea? Shouldn't we remove the dangerous leader? Maybe. Shouldn't we do something? But the idea of destroying millions of people because it fits in with it, with a prejudice, you know, in, um, you know, as you found with your neighbors, as, as, as any of us find when we cross over the divide and talk with people of, of other beliefs, even people of quite hateful beliefs at time, I, I, I'm not a supporter of the cancel culture. Um, I, I spent a, an evening talking with a guy who told me he hadn't talked to his sister for two years because she was a druggie. And so he sat down and it's late, late at night in a, in a hotel bar. And as I drank a couple of orange juices, uh, he drank five different single malt whiskeys. And um, I said, well, druggy. And then I expected him to say, oh, you know, yeah, she, she takes heroin or something like this. He said, she, she smokes cannabis. And for two years, he hadn't mm. talked to his own sister because she smoked cannabis. Now, the, the cancel culture choice there would have been to get my megaphone out, call him various abusive <laughs> names, wash my feet and, and go away. Instead, I sat and talked with him for an hour about drugs and you know, pointed out difference between a hard drug and a soft drug. A hard drug is addictive. Cannabis is a soft drug. It's not held to be addictive by most people. And uh, I said, so, for example, coffee, coffee is a hard drug. It's addictive. And if you stop taking it, you'll most likely get a headache. And I'd forgotten that there was somebody behind the bar. And this little voice came out. This woman said, my husband stopped drinking coffee last week and he's had a headache all week. <laughs> and the next day, this guy phoned his sister. So I think that's what it's about. I, I think it's about making yeah. the world a better place and being sure that as, exactly as you're doing, that, that we, we point out there are charlatans, there are sharks among us, and we need to be alert to them. You know, we need to understand that. And if we are ever to, to create a, a good democratic society, and I think we have the possibility of it, um, there have been a few human societies that were peaceful and that lasted for centuries, in fact, without warfare. The um, Mahenjo-Daro, the Indus Valley civilization, survived for 700 years without warfare. But it's also interesting that there are no signs of priesthood and there are no signs of of kings that they appear to have been egalitarian. Um, archaeological digging in the Ukraine has been interrupted in the last year and a half, but they found a similar society seems to have flourished there. So it is possible for us to live with in peace with one another. And these religious, so-called religious demagogues, are the very people that are preventing that from happening with their snake oil and their lies. So uh, let me just applaud your work. You know, I think it's incredible the, the amount of work you've done, the, the amount of these people that, that you're showing and the, and the historical line that you're showing, and that you still, despite all of that, it would appear to me from our conversation, have a pretty positive outlook on life. You know, it's not, it's not made you cynical. And it's not made me cynical either. So it, it, we can, you know, see the horrors of humanity without being poisoned by them and believe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, for me, it's, can you run it through the filter? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And what is love God? That's, 
for me, that's the burning question. When you leave a cult where you've been given this false deity, which is generally the cult leader and his association to the God or whatever, you get this false sense that you understand the God and that you, you alone have the only understanding of the God. Mm. And once you leave this, for, for example, one of the first churches we visited was very, very um, evangelical to the extent that they were the ones who would, you know, condemn those who were not uh, of the same faith. And I sat down with the ministers one day and I asked them, what if, hypothetically, there is a remote island somewhere where a person does love God, has never heard the name Jesus, has never seen a Bible, never had the opportunity to hear the name Jesus, but does understand there's a God and does understand that something created this heavens and this earth, and we should be kind to the people in it. They're doing exactly what Jesus said. Are these people going to heaven or are they going to hell? And the look on the face was comical because what do you do with this, right? You can't say, well, they're going to hell because they never heard Jesus. They're following Jesus' instructions. And yet there was this, you could see in their eyes, there was this inclination to say it because that's how they've been trained. Mm. They've been trained to think that their understanding of God is the only right one. Now, if you're a Christian, you have to believe that your understanding of Christ, of God through Christianity is the right one. So don't get me wrong in saying that, that that's not a common thing among all religions. But the problem is when you think in this mindset, it closes the doors. So, like you said, the Islamic people, the uh, the Muslim people, they believe that it's the God of Abraham. It's the same God as our God. Yeah. If you're in Christianity, you're trained that, no, it's not, because they have Muhammad instead of Jesus. And a wide range of Christians have no idea that when it goes back to the roots, it's supposed to be the same God. It's supposed to be the God of Abraham, right? <clears throat> so... The problem for me is whenever you think in, in that way, you have closed the door towards, if you are wanting to convert them to your belief system, you've closed that door because you're you're basically cutting them off. You're saying, no, you've got it wrong, and I, I will <laughs> wipe the dust off of my feet from you. I just can't live this way. You know, I, I'm too much of a people person. I like life. I like... Mm-hmm. I like the possibility that we could create the world as a better place if we didn't treat each other this way. Mm-hmm. And me, you know, as an interesting ex-cult member, whenever I'm in a new church and I visit church A of denomination A and I get, you know, attempted to be recruited by denomination B, there's this weird thing that happens well, isn't it the same Christian God? But at a micro micro level, it's the same problem. Mm-hmm. Their view of God has to be the right one, and the other dom- denomination has to be the wrong one. You ha- you get in this framework and this mindset, and I can't say that all of it exists because of these evil men in my research. But what I can say is that thought and that mindset was accelerated by it. They became worsened by it. And if you were to just rip all of this confusion away and just say, let's go back to the basics. If you're a Christian, what does the Bible say? 
what did Jesus tell you to do, right? How many times should you forgive them? And for me, I just decided, you know, when I leave this, people ask me, are you Baptist? Are you Methodist? What are you? And my answer is I'm on a lifelong journey. I have no idea where I'll end up. I'm open to learning and I want to learn from everyone. I don't care if you're an atheist. I don't care if you're a Muslim. I don't care who you are. I can learn from you. Yes. And it's, it's the light that that's how it's supposed to be. Iron sharpens iron is another quote that I use often. You can learn something from everybody and you can learn more about God, even from an unbeliever. So why would you take the mindset that you cut the unbeliever off when you can learn from him? And if you treat him nice, the unbeliever might become a believer. So that's how I chose to mold my life after leaving. Yeah, and it's it's a good good way to work. It, it has to be. I mean, Will Rogers said he never met a man he didn't like. I, I'm afraid I have met people I don't like, and that's all there is to it. <laughs> um, maybe had a kindlier disposition than mine, but I've never met anybody who could didn't have something to teach me. And and yeah. it doesn't matter what their intellectual condition is. Everybody has something that I can learn from, and. Um, life is therefore not it's um it's largely a positive experience you know it's an adventure it it's interesting i'm always intellectually stimulated by people and what they have to say as i have been by our conversation today um and it, it is it it's about having you know sorting the values out and then deciding um what is god as i say i accept god as a metaphor and uh, if I've understood language properly, the word God and the word good are cognate. They come from the same origin, uh, as do uh, whole, healthy, and holy. They come from the same root word. Um, and I, you know, I, I think there is a truth in that, that if, we, if what we worship, if worship is necessary, is goodness, then we have a better understanding of the intentions of a good God. And if God is not good, then I don't want to worship him or her. And I'd also, you know, as a friend of mine many years ago pointed out, it would be very difficult being in heaven knowing there were people being tortured in hell. And so if such a thing exists, I fear I shall have to go to hell and see if I can help out at all, you know. <laughs> But there we are. This has been absolutely wonderful. What a pleasure to meet you. And um, it's good to meet you as well. And we'll uh, we'll come back in a few months' time, maybe, and and talk a bit more. So sounds th good. Thanks very much for sharing your time with us. Thank you. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.